0: This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University
1: of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Good evening. My name is Harry Hilling. I'm the Executive Director of the Birch Aquarium here at Scripps Institution of Oceanography. I'd like to welcome you all to the Jeffrey B. Graham Perspectives on Ocean Science Lecture Series. It is my great pleasure this evening to introduce our speaker, Dr. Greg Rouse. Greg? is a professor of marine biology here at Scripps and he's also the curator of the benthic invertebrate collection, which is currently being showcased right here in our new oddities exhibit. Greg has earned his bachelor's and his master's at the University of Queensland in Australia, and then obtained a PhD at the University of Sydney. Following his postdoctoral research at the Smithsonian Institution National Museum of Natural History, Rouse returned to Australia where he was a research fellow at the University of Sydney before joining the South Australian Museum as a research scientist. He then joined the faculty here in 2006. Greg uses morphological and DNA sequencing to assess relationships among animals and shed light on evolutionary patterns. He has been on numerous oceanographic expeditions investigating animals that live in some of the most remote deep-sea areas, including whale falls and hydrothermal vents and methane seeps. Greg's a true leader in the field. In addition to an extensive and extremely well-cited publication record, he has personally discovered and named more than 100 new species of animals, 25 in just this last year. We are delighted to have Greg here this evening to fill us in on some of his latest discoveries. Please join me in welcoming Greg for this talk entitled Deep Discoveries in the 2000s Bone Eaters, Green Bombers, Ruby Sea Dragons, and More. Please welcome Greg Rouse.
0: Well, thanks very much for that great introduction, Harry, and it's my great pleasure to be here with you all tonight. And I am going to tell you, these uh, funny common names you just heard all have actual scientific names underlying them. And I want to tell you how we uh, got there. And the theme that will run through the talk tonight will be on this word serendipity. And if you haven't heard it before, it's uh, a word that goes back to 1754 when uh, Horace Walpole was writing a letter to a friend and he was discussing uh, a story that he'd been reading about some princes from Ceylon, and which at that time was called serend. And he, these princes kept on finding things uh, accidentally that turned out to be very useful. And so he coined this term serendipity. And then about 100 years later, Louis Pasteur wrote that uh, serendipity really then is not just the lucky accident of finding something, but also to have a prepared mind. And so I'm going to tell you some stories about creatures tonight that serendipity plays a part There will definitely be some real serendipity where I kind of knew what was going to go on, but I'll also tell you some where I failed miserably and it wasn't for years until I finally did figure out the proper story and and serendipity really did happen. So in my lab, what we do, as Harry said, is talk about biodiversity and the discovery of biodiversity. And the most interesting thing that I've done in some ways to date was these amazing creatures that are called bone-eating worms. So I'll tell you about the discovery of those. I'll then talk about uh, another crazy animal called Xenotabella, which otherwise is known as the purple socks, and for reasons that will become clear. Uh, And then I'll move on to these extraordinary creatures called the green bombers, which are pelagic worms. And these live in uh, the biggest environment on Earth, which is the deep pelagic ecosystem of the world. And then I'm going to wrap up with uh, a fairly recent discovery, the most recent of them. concerning the ruby sea dragon. And we do a lot of work in my lab on sea dragons that you can see in just the room behind me. Uh, But you won't see a ruby sea dragon alive because it came from slightly deeper water. And I'll tell you about how we found that, which was really a truly a serendipitous discovery. Okay, so bone worms. What you see here is a finger bone, a phalange of a a grey whale. And you can see those red flowers covering it. And those creatures are actually worms related to earthworms that are eating the bone. And how did that happen and how, did, how was that discovered? Well, it goes back to 2002 and here are uh, good friends and colleagues of mine, uh, Bob Ryan Hoke and Shana Goffredi, and they were out with uh, this robot here, a remote operated vehicle called Tiburon. And they were off the uh, coast of Moss Landing here. This is Monterey, this is Santa Cruz, and Monterey Bay Aquarium and Research Institute is set up in this particular place because that canyon there goes down to about 4,000 metres very quickly, and with this ship, they can go out there and explore it literally in a matter of a few hours. And on this particular day, they were out looking for what's called a cold seep. And they were looking for this, a clam bed, and these are clams that are about this big that are using methane and sulphide as their energy source. They're not filter-feeding. And these are commonly found in many regions around the world. And Bob's one of the world's foremost experts on that. However, they didn't find clams that day. What they found instead was a dead whale. And that whale was about 30 feet long. You can see it lying there on the bottom. There's its skull. There's its backbone. Um, But the bizarre thing was it was covered with this flower-like red carpet all over the bones. They collected some of those bones, and uh, at that time I was still working in South Australia and they sent some of them to me. So here you can see the bone, and there were these red things coming out of it. They were in order of this long, so they were quite large creatures, and no one had ever seen anything like it before. Uh, I then got invited out on a cruise with Bob and we um, dissected some out of the bone. And when we actually dug into the bone, what we could find was these red roots, uh, green roots rather, ramifying through the bone. And the trunk that you could see in the crown would retract into this long tube that they had. And they could contract a long way in. Uh, so we then did some work on the anatomy. And we did a lot of DNA sequencing on these things. But they were very heavily uh, vascularized. They had a great circulatory system. They, the red color that they have was from blood. They have hemoglobin, much like, like the hemoglobin that we have. But they also didn't have a mouth or a gut. There was nothing in there. Uh, just a lot of muscles. All of these worms were females. That whole area that was inside the bone, apart from those root-like structures, was an ovary. They were all females, and when we looked inside those roots, what we found was they were full of bacteria. So this creature was truly bizarre with all of that. if Here's where I've dissected open the roots. This is the ovary here. The root going down into the bone had big blood vessels that ran up through the body and then came out to that plume out on top. So, And then when we looked inside the, the roots, if we looked in the tissue here, what we found was there were special cells underneath the roots. And if you looked inside those cells, there were bacteria. So what was going on? Well, my friend Shana uh, gofridi who's now at Occidental College, she looked at these bacteria and sequenced them. These bacteria are able to break down complex organic molecules. And we think that they were living inside these special cells of the worm, and basically the worm was farming these bacteria inside those roots to get their nutrition, and they were breaking down the whale bone to get at the collagen that makes up most of the bone. The worm had to de-mineralize the bone, it had to dissolve away the bone, and it did that with acid, which we've now figured out as well, and then it allowed the worm to get at the collagen to feed those bacteria, and in turn they then ate the, the bacteria. So that's a long story I don't have time to tell you about. But the other weird thing about them, though, is they were all females, as I said. And one day, this was a weird discovery. I was sitting in my little office, my little lab, and I had one of these worms under a microscope, and I saw these things, these little packages there. Well, it turns out this is the oviduct. The female spawns her eggs up here, and they go out into the water. Sitting on her oviduct were these little packages. And I thought they were little bundles of sperm. It turns out they were actually males. They were full of all the different stages of sperm. And that was an accidental discovery sitting in my lab. I put one of those under the microscope and I could see that it wasn't just sperm, it had all of the stages of sperm development. And then we knew that we had this amazing discovery of females were were about this big. And can you see the males in her tube here? They're these little, (laughs) tiny, tiny things there. Literally, they're hundreds of thousands of times smaller than the females. And we found hundreds of these males in the tube of a female, and we literally called them harems. They had harems of males. And the ladies were gathering little babies out of the plankton and keeping them in their tubes to fertilize their eggs. Uh, It's quite an amazing reproductive strategy. It happens a few times in the animal kingdom that these dwarf males have evolved, and basically it comes down to the fact that sperm is cheap and eggs are expensive. So here you can see the little male, and he's got yolk there. His yolk isn't going to be made for making his body. His yolk is being made to make sperm. And once he runs out of yolk, he'll die. And that's why the female keeps on recruiting new babies out of the plankton. And they end up with these big harems. So that was quite an interesting story. So we ended up publishing that. And we figured out a bit about the biology of ozodax. Here you can see ozodax decaying away on that bone. They literally soften it up to the extent where crabs can come in, like this big tanner crab, and they can literally bite off the bone and chew up the collagen and the worms as well, to the point where we used to think that whales could last for decades on the bottom. This is when the skeleton we first found in 2002, but it was pretty much gone after only seven years. It had been destroyed by all the Ozodax and then the action of the crabs. And uh, this really was a big paradigm shift in what we understand about whale falls, whale skeletons that fall to the seafloor. We even have a whale fall here, actually, off Mission Bay. Uh, we sank this in 2011, and my lab's going to be out to explore this whale fall that's called Rosebud. We always give a whale fall a name. Uh, This one, unfortunately, this whale was struck by a ship back in 2011, it was a big pregnant female fin whale, 23 metres long, it's the biggest whale that's ever been sunk, it took seven tonnes of metal to sink her, and she's lying on the seafloor today, this is a massive bacterial mat, she's covered with uh, bacteria and all sorts of other amazing creatures, and we're looking forward to going back out there in in, uh, October to see what's happened to that whale fall and collect more ozodacs, I hope. OK, what do we know m- about Ozidax? I've briefly introduced you to them. What are they? Well, their closest relatives, actually, are these creatures, which you might have seen before in documentaries. These are giant hydrothermal vent tube worms that also live off symbiotic bacteria living in their bodies. So these can reach up to 2 meters in height. They are full of symbiotic bacteria, and they're breaking down hydrogen sulfide. And in the evolutionary tree, they're this branch here, and Ozidax is sitting here in green. And they're all, this whole group here, relies on bacteria for their nutrition. They have no guts, no mouths. (coughs) Uh, So Ozodax, in a sense, really was bizarre and unique. But in the end, it wasn't that unique. It still fitted into an evolutionary picture of other relatives that also rely on symbiotic bacteria. Uh, We have found many of these now. There are lots and lots of species out there. And just this year, Harry alluded to the fact that I published a bunch of new species this year. Uh, here's some pictures of the different kinds that we found. And you can see they have different kinds of bodies, different colors. All of these are actually differentiated on DNA data as well. Uh, and we had accumulated these over the years, uh, and uh, including this very strange one that is these funny pigtails coming out of the sediment. This one is actually going after bone fragments that are buried down in the sediment. So Osadax just doesn't go for the carcass. It's even evolved ones that will go after chips of bone, that after the carcass has begun to break up, there'll be pieces of bone down in the bottom of the mud. This one really was a weirdo. Uh, So we just described these. Um, If any of you know some recent, there is a quote about the um, that uh, Haldane, a geneticist, was asked by a preacher, uh, uh, what did he infer from the nature of God from his creation? And uh, Haldane was thinking about the millions and millions of beetle species are out there. And he thought that he, he quipped to the preacher that God must have an inordinate fondness for beetles. Uh, so I titled this paper, though, An Inordinate Fondness for Osidaks, because there were 14 new species uh, just from Monterey Bay alone. And we're up to 18 new species now. And uh, we often, all of these highlighted ones here in, in bold are the new species in that paper. Mostly we named them after our colleagues who were pilots on the submersible or other workers on, on this, but we also like to have a bit of fun with our names, so uh, this one <laughs> reminded us of Jabba the Hut, so it's called Ozodax Jabba. And as i show you, we're up to 33 species the, today. Um, Ozodax just doesn't go after whale bones. Uh, we've put down turkey bones, cow bones, chicken bones, uh, turtle bones, and I even put down fish bones. And so this is swordfish bones, and you can see Ozodax very happily uh, chomping away on those bones. And uh, that was partly because whales evolved about 50 million years ago. So we were interested if Ozodax had evolved to consume whale bones or w- whether it was an older group. So that's why we put down fish bones to see if they could exploit fish because fish have been around a lot longer than whales. And then some other paleontologists got involved and they looked at these uh, plesiosaur bones and mosasaur bones and they found actually using micro-CT x-rays that there were holes in these bones of these uh, plesiosaurs that actually were just the same as the burrows of today's contemporary ozodax. So they were actually able to date... Um, ozodax all the way back to 125 million years, well before the origin of whales. I've got one last little ozodax story to tell you about, and this is another serendipitous discovery where this is a little seal that had been lying on the seafloor at Monterey Bay, and a colleague of mine picked them up and shipped them down to me here, and we were able to keep ozodax alive in our aquarium system down at Scripps, and I was looking at this particular one on that little piece of rib bone that was picked up, And I saw that it was extending out over the bone and that it had this weird white patch up in its crown where there shouldn't be anything like that. Uh, And when I looked at that specimen under the microscope, it turned out that was a male. Now that was strange because all of the males we'd found to that point were dwarfs. Uh, This was a male that could eat bone. And this actually turned out not to be a primitive kind of ozidax, this was a reversal. This was an ozodax that had evolved from a dwarf male ancestors and it was quite an extraordinary discovery. It had bacteria just like the females uh, and we had a lot of fun describing that reversal in dwarf males. That's the only case that's known today among all of the animals where the ancestor was a dwarf male but they switched to having sexes that were similar sizes again. Okay, so that's my quick story about ozodax and now we're going to talk about purple socks. Uh, This is a 13-year story. Uh, that ended up discovering four new species of these amazing looking creatures that you can see there. Uh, and there's a, um, a story here that goes back to the 1940s in Sweden. And uh, a scientist called um, Westblad named this species bokki in 1949. It looked like this. It's about two inches long. Uh, and it had no brain. It had no gut. It had a It had a a sack inside its body, like a sea anemone or a coral. It had no kidneys. It had no brain, no real gonad. It was a very, very simple creature. And he called it xeno, tabella. Xeno means foreign or strange. And tabella is a reference to flatworms. So he basically thought of it as the strange flatworm. But it didn't have a lot of features of flatworms, which have kidneys, which have complex brains, which have um, their hermaphrodites. They have sperm exchange, all sorts of crazy things. Nevertheless, xenotabella sat there for some decades, the only species in its group. And in the big tree of life, which is becoming more and more established now, this is by a wonderful artist called Ray Troll. It's a bit complex for me to tell you about, so I'm just going to show you a simplified version. Today we've been using genomic information, and we now pretty much understand that sponges or another strange creature are probably the relatives of all of the other animals. And then we have corals and sea anemones as a relatives of everything else. And then there are two basic branches. There are crabs grouping with worms, earthworms, and mollusks as one branch that are called protostomes, and then there's another branch that is the sea stars, the echinoderms, and then us, and we're called deuterostomes. So we have this basic group with us and sea stars and sea urchins, and then the protostomes, and then we have this uh, more primitive, in a sense, sea anemones, and then we have sponges. Well, where did xenotabella fit into that picture? It's been an ongoing mystery since 1949. And the first twist in the tale was in 1997, someone sequenced some DNA of one and said, no, this is a mollusk. It's actually a bivalve. And so they sequenced the DNA. They got a hit towards bivalves and they said, OK, this is a bivalve. They got that published in Nature back in 1997. Uh, But then someone sequenced it again and they said, no, that was a contamination. You sequenced the food. Which sometimes food of your prey will end up inside you and if you make a mistake in the lab, you can sequence the food, not the actual animal. So they did sequence what they thought was the animal here and you can see that it actually ends up going fairly close to sea urchins and uh, their relatives. So they then made its own phylum, its own major branch of the animal tree. But the big implication was, because it didn't have a brain or a complete gut or kidneys or anything like that, that this was an animal that had lost a lot of features in its evolution. It was a simplified animal. It wasn't a simple animal at all. But still, it was the only species that we knew. So some more genomic information came along, and uh, it was bouncing around the tree. It was either going with those deuterostomes, or it actually turns out it wasn't with flatworms. It could have been in a more simple position. So if we go back to that simplified tree that I showed you, it once was thought of as a flatworm. For a while, it was thought of as a mollusk. Then those people that I showed you said it was a close to sea stars here. And then we did some genomic work, and we said, no, it's actually here. So it was bouncing all over the evolutionary tree. Now, the evolutionary tree otherwise is pretty stable. Not much is going on. We've stabilised it through all of this genomic information now, except xenotabella was an oddball. So one way you can solve this is if you find more representatives of the group. So people were starting to look around and see, is there really only one species of this? Is it like the coelacanth, where there's hardly any around in the world today? Well, that's where we started to get lucky, sort of. So, I'd been working with those people up at Monterey Bay for a long time. And uh, there we are, back at that cold seat in 2003. Now, remember I told you that Xenotabella eats mollusks? Well, here is a video from
1: 2003.
0: Here is the control room where you can hear us making fools of ourselves. There's Xenotabella. We don't know what that is. No clue. We thought it was a strange sea cucumber, and that's it. Here you can see it being collected. Uh, It looks like literally a pair of socks that have been thrown on the ground. They're so fragile. And for the next decade, as we hunted for these... I'll, I'll turn myself down. As we hunted for these, the pilots of the ROVs, thereafter, referred to them as the purple socks. So that's where the name came from. Uh, And you can see that there are actually lots of these xenotabellas all over the place. There were 40 or 50 we could count in the video from that day. Here's a a frame grab of it. It was hanging around those mollusks, those clams. Well, we collected two. We snipped one. We we did all the right things. We put one in formalin. We froze one. We did some in ethanol, except we totally forgot about it. I'm not kidding. It sat on that shelf. It went into the freezer. It sat on the shelf. Um, we had no search image. We had no idea what it was. Uh, I was obsessed with Ozidax, and that's all I was into. So there was a fail. <laughs> there was an opportunity. We should have seized on that, the discovery of xenotabella. These were big. They were that big. Remember, the one from Sweden was just a little one. So. However, the next year, I got invited to go to Sweden to look for xenotabella to do some genomics work, and we found some. There I am freezing in some fjord off, uh, not fjord, but Kattegat, somewhere off uh, western Sweden, and we're skimming mud, and we basically did that. We let the mud settle, and then the xenotabellas would come up, and we'd pick them out. So this was the only known xenotabella, and we did a lot of DNA sequencing on that. So then I knew what it looked like. So, cut forward three years, 2007, we're back in Monterey at a whale fall. I still don't remember that cruise from four years before, right? Completely forgotten about it. Here is a xenotabella. Now I can recognize it. So we actually collected that creature. We got one. And uh, here you can see how one way that we collect animals is we use push cores. So we have a perspex cylinder. We push it into the mud over the creature. And then... Um, we cap it, and then we can bring it up. And it comes up in beautiful condition, and we bought that one up alive. Uh, and when we saw it, we, uh, it's still alive crawling around in a dish, and here you can see it for scale. It was pretty small. It was only about that big. But we sequenced the DNA. We were super excited that we had a new species of xenotabella from Monterey Bay, about the same size and closely related to the Swedish one. Completely forgetting the one from 2003. <laughs> But in 2009, six years after the event, I was looking through some old pictures and I saw this. So I'd had all the pictures. We get thousands of pictures every cruise. It's really a data management issue. And uh, I just happened to be flicking through them. You know how you're flicking through your pictures and it was like, whoa, look at that. And it was a gigantic xeno tabella and it was Bob. I called Bob and I said, Bob, do you have that? they went and looked and yeah, they had a jar sitting there for six years at room temperature there it was in the minus 80, they'd had a freezer fail, it might have thawed um, and been refrozen, we didn't know, um, but we were able to get some DNA out of it but then it was okay, we've got to go back, so we went back in 2000 again, twice in 2010 and again in 2011 no luck we didn't find it And that was that clam field where we'd seen so many. So it was pretty disappointing. We knew we had two species now, but we didn't have enough good quality material to do genomic-level information that would get us a nature paper, which is what we wanted, because we thought it was pretty cool. So the vision was nature, nature, right? You You don't get these chances very often. So then, a few years later, we're on a cruise to the Gulf of California, the Guaymas Basin, a famous place for hydrothermal vents and methane seeps. We're going along with the ROV here. These are the lasers, 29 centimetres apart. And, whoa, what was that? I just saw it out of the corner of my eye. I said, stop. We went back. Xeno Tabella, just out on the mud. This is is a lot of beers. Okay, so I bought the crew a lot of beers. (laughs) Uh, Because we'd been looking and looking and looking for that thing. It turns out there's one there, 29 centimetres across, so that was about that big. When we sequenced that one, it was the same as the one in Monterey Bay. So that was the same species living all the way down in the Gulf of California. But 50 centimetres away was another one. And that one turned out to be another new species. So now we had three. Here you can see it crawling along. We did a lot of video. We were really excited. Now we had three. Um, But we had a problem with the preservation of the DNA and the RNA. We couldn't get a transcriptome, which is what we really needed. Here you can see the two of them. Look at that. Two species. Still don't understand how that happened. Uh, We could see mollusks in the vicinity, and we roamed around looking for more, but no luck. So we had then these two different ones, and we now had three species, but we still couldn't get the transcriptome to nail that nature paper. Cut forward to 2015, now we're down in the bottom of the Gulf of California at the Pescadero Basin, 3,700 metres, another xenotabella. Yes, now we knew what we were looking for, we got it, we collected seven. We now had one species, two species, three species and the other shallow water one, four, and we got the transcriptomic data to allow us to get thousands of genes to do a transcriptomic analysis to one, prove we had four new species, but also to place it in the tree of life. We named one Monstrosa because it was so big. We named one, here's the Monstrosa from Gulf of California. We named Profunda because it came from 3,700 metres. We named one Hollandorum for two professors at Scripps, Nick and Linda Holland, who work on developmental biology. And yes, they liked it. And uh, this one, my tech at the time, Jose, said, Greg, that looks like a churro and said, OK, we're going to call it Xenotabella churro. (laughs) So we did. And you can do this stuff. You're allowed to do that. You can have fun with names, like Jabba. So when we did the DNA work on this, and here's a big picture tree, where it came out, the takeaway is that Xenotabella is not simple sorry, is simple, it's not simplified. So it doesn't have kidneys because it never had any in its ancestry, it doesn't have a brain because it never had any in its ancestry. It's a genuinely simple animal, and this is based on well over uh, 1,000 genes to establish that. Um, Well, so here's an opportunity for outreach. We had a big, high-profile publication. Um, We put out a media release. (laughs) We used the words purple sock. We used the words churro. The media loved it. (laughs) <laughs> so, so, but we still slipped in the message about the value of this animal and its, in, and its importance in understanding the evolutionary tree of life and uh, to top it off it then got chosen now you might not know but about 18,000 species are named every year of animals and plants uh, and there's a group in, uh, in New York who name the top 10 new species each year to highlight biodiversity discovery and churro <laughs> not any of the others. Churro, of course, was the one that they chose to be one of the top 10 for for 2016. Okay, so that's my Xenotabella story. Now switching now to the deep pelagic oceans. So this is the largest realm of the world, but it's also the most difficult to sample. The biomass and the diversity here. The diversity is high, but the biomass is low. And many of the creatures that live in this area are gelatinous and very, very fragile. So the real way to catch these creatures, this is a video taken by a a remote operator vehicle, an ROV operating at an oil platform. And they picked up this amazing video, but they didn't collect the animal. People knew it was out there, but no one had collected one. But my postdoc, Karen Osborne, who's now working at the Smithsonian, had been gathering these when she worked on her PhD at Ambari. She came to my lab because I had collected lots of the bottom-dwelling forms of these things and in collaboration we were able to make an evolutionary tree of these bottom-dwelling worms and put in these amazing gelatinous life forms which had evolved from benthic, bottom-dwelling ancestors. And the most amazing one was this one that we called swimmer. Again, someone had called this one... uh, floater back in 1969 which I thought was a fantastic name and this one is literally just floating around but this one you can see was swimming most beautifully so we decided to call this one swimmer. Um, We got this into a pretty good publication because up around its head here it had these green little balls and when they are disturbed they fly off and they glow green. And uh, they don't glow until they're cast off. And we think, we don't know, we've never really seen this in action, but we think it's a distraction, much like dropping a a gecko's tail or a lizard tail. So we ended up describing that and finding lots of different forms of these uh, during the time that Karen was with me. uh, And we ended up with seven new species of this particular group. Some of them had bombs, some of them didn't have bombs. uh, And that one also was chosen as one of the top 10 species back in 2010. But my favourite one is actually is one that's called squid worm. This one didn't have bombs, it had elaborate eight pairs of eight gills, four pairs of gills here with these funny tentacles coming off the front that are used for feeding. And the geologists who discovered this thing called it squid worm because it had ten appendages and reminded them of a squid but it had the body of a worm. And here you're going to see video of how these actual creatures are caught with a submarine and you often need a special chamber or a special funnel to grab it. Um, and Things don't always go to plan. Um, the name here, toothy, means squid, and drillus means worm. So we took their nickname and we uh, used Greek, actually, to, lat- to make the formal scientific name. Toothodrilis same, which means squid worm, from off the coast of the Philippines. Here they're about to catch it. No. <laughs> no, it got away. Uh, and they're not that common. Here's another one they're trying to catch with a different method. I think it survived. Uh, and now, finally, this one here, photographed alive, is going into the funnel here to be finally studied. And that one now sits here at our Scripps collection, Toothadryllis samae. So these, this deep pelagic is actually a great area of discovery and, and a lot of ongoing work. And I, I just up at this mon- meeting in Monterey, there's a lot more work going on now that there are a lot more submarines working and exploring in the in the abyssal oceans. So to finish, I'm going to tell you the story of sea dragons. And you, uh, if you haven't seen them, you should know that both species of sea dragons, as we knew back a few years ago, are just next door uh, behind me. And they are the leafy sea dragon, described in 1865, and the common or weedy sea dragon, described in 1804. Uh, And I'm going to tell you about the serendipitous discovery of species number three. So uh, this is... Most credit goes here to my student Josephine Stiller who graduated last year and now is a postdoc at the University of Copenhagen and our collaborator Nerida Wilson and many other people over more than a decade where we were gathering samples of these fishes and the common sea dragon lives from Sydney in Australia, all around the coast and also around Tasmania. They're only found in Australia. If you see them in an aquarium anywhere, they were caught or their father was caught in Australia Um, Breeding programs are underway, including here at the birch, but no one has been very successful so far. The leafy sea dragon has a more restricted range um, just from Perth in Western Australia, maybe to Victorian historic times, but certainly it's still around Adelaide in South Australia. And we were interested in these things from a conservation genetics perspective. No one had done any genetics on these animals, and we started a program where we were going into the field, finding the fish... And we would that 's a challenge, I can tell you they 're so wonderfully camouflaged. Here i 'm with my great colleague there's Josephine diving along. it 's a pretty surgy day. Um, sea dragons don 't necessarily need to be in calm water. And Craig has just found a sea dragon i 'm trailing along behind, as usual, and uh, with the camera. And there is the dragon right there. Can you see it yet? it 's coming into view. he 's taken a photo and uh, you're about to see it come into the frame, and there it is. They are really challenging to find, and we like working with experts uh, to help us find them. And we never killed any sea dragons. In the whole course of this project, we had animal ethics approval to go out and catch the dragons like this. They can't swim very well. They're pretty agile, but they really can't get away from you. And here's... The, I'm going to just show you in a, a briefly the process of how we get a tissue sample, because from a little snip of tissue, we are able to get enough... Uh, genomic information from well over 1,000 genes that allowed us to recreate the evolutionary tree of sea dragons, but also to do the population genetics to understand the connectivity of their populations. So here I'm taking a photo of the sea dragon against a slate because every sea dragon has unique markings on its face. And we're actually going to set up a website now that citizen scientists will be able to send up their photos, and we're hoping to use machine learning to identify sea dragons through time. Uh, and all of our archive photos will go online as well for this. And there are still some sea dragons we collected that are still around and swimming at various sites in Australia. What I have to do now, though, is get out my scissors and forceps and uh, you hold still and I'm going to snip off just a little piece of tissue there. There's no bone uh, and the fish is being snipped. And I've taken basically about half of fingernails off and I'm going to put that into a Ziploc bag. We'll take a photo of the sea dragon. It's made a sharp... Uh, cut there so anyone seeing it in the future will know that sea dragon was cut because sometimes we dive in an area for a few days. We don't want to sample a sea dragon twice. And so the sea dragon going what has, has happened to me is uh, she's happily swimming away minus a little bit. Um, but we routinely saw them day after day and they, they really seem to know, it, show no ill effects. Okay, so we took all that information And uh, there's the snipping, and we put them in a little bag, and then we put it into alcohol. And from that, we would then sequence DNA. I don't have time to tell you all of the process and the results that we found, but I can tell you that they are each only one species, one leafy sea dragon, one weedy sea dragon, and their populations are pretty thriving and healthy. They're not, we're going to provide information about their conservation to the state governments in due course. But the real story tonight is, as well as the live specimens, we were really interested in getting museum tissues. So uh, this story all goes, actually, is rooted in museum samples. If a specimen of a fish has gone into alcohol, we can get DNA out of it. So Josephine wrote to all the museums in Australia asking, do you have any tissues in, in alcohol? Most fish go into formalin, which is no good for DNA. But a few, including this mysterious creature here, had gone into alcohol, and when she sequenced it, it didn't match the leafy sea dragon, and it didn't match the weedy sea dragon, which it had been catalogued as. It was from the Western Australia Museum. It was actually about 7% divergent, which is more divergent than we are from a chimpanzee, for instance. So we then asked for the animal, and amazingly, they had taken a photograph of it before they froze it. It was caught on a biodiversity survey, and it was bright red. And it was a male, and he had a whole clutch of babies on his tail. It had a very big swimming appendage up here. Its pectoral fins up there were very large. It had a very long snout. It actually had an extra uh, vertebra and a trunk ring around it. So for us, it was, as well as the genetics, it was clearly a very different fish. So we went ahead then and named this the Ruby Sea Dragon. This is a false coloured micro CT, an X-ray 3D image that Josephine made. Uh, and Rachel, who helped her do that, is actually here in the audience tonight from the main campus. Um, We like to collaborate and work with people on the main campus whenever we can, and this was really a spectacularly successful image that that we we were able to acquire. So we then named this Phylopteryx dewey C, in honour of uh, dewey white, and I hope she's here tonight. Um, And uh, it was clearly a new species, but it was most closely related to the common sea dragon, But it appears that it had lost its appendages in its evolutionary history uh, because both of its other relatives have those leafy appendages on their bodies. And yeah, this one also got into the top 10 species. We've been pretty lucky with this. Um, However, we'd only ever had dead ones, right? So they'd been trawled up or found in museum collections. We asked people to go and look. These two were trawled in 1955 from off Perth and they clearly were ruby sea dragons. And then people started to find them washed up on the beach and there was even this one that had stranded off Perth's Beach in 1919. It had just been miscatalogued as a weedy or a common sea dragon for a hundred years. And then, a few weeks after we published our paper, Zoe was walking with her family along the beaches near Esperance where that one we had found was trawled and she found a freshly washed up ruby sea dragon. So that was where... The trawled one was that we got the DNA from. That's where Zoe was with her family. Then beach ones washed up here and washed up here, and we had the original records that had washed up and ended up in the Western Australian Museum. So we kind of knew that they were out there around this southern corner of Western Australia in between 50 and 70 metres of depth. Scuba divers had never seen these because it was too deep for normal scuba driving, and maybe they'd been trawled by fishermen, but fishermen don't like to report these protected kind of creatures, so they probably just tossed them overboard. So it was kind of in that twilight zone of biodiversity that no one had found it. I wanted to see one alive. We all did. So, we spoke to Dewey, we said, we want to do the quest for the ruby sea dragon. And in April 2016, we went there. We did a whole lot of other diving to get tissue samples of sea dragons to, to fill out the genetic sequencing of the, of the leafy and weedy sea dragon basically because I figured this was a long shot. I wanted to get some result out of going all the way to Australia. So we got another 30 new uh, sea dragon samples. But then we decided to go to Esperance. So we ended up flying into Perth, go to Esperance. And then we went from Esperance in a charter boat over to where the fish had been caught back in 2007. Now, this biodiversity trawl they'd actually mark the GPS location of when the net went in and when the net came out. So we had a definite target. We uh, leased this boat. We had it for four days. And we had a little ROV. This was too deep for scuba diving. So we had what's called a mini-ROV, literally no bigger than this. Seabotics is a company actually based here in San Diego. And uh, here is DAF, Phillips, our genius pilot, because we were useless at driving this thing. I, anyway, they're they're more difficult to drive than you can imagine. However, we had bad weather, so we left on April the fourth. We had waves for two days, and all I could do was photograph albatross and petrels and and uh, not be sick. And other people were sick, and uh, it was kind of frustrating. Uh, we went out to the site. We did put the ROV down. We put a whole lot of lead on it. We put it down to the bottom. All we saw was sand. But on April the seventh, we got lucky. It had calmed down to about a one-metre swell. And here you can see DAF piloting. So we were super lucky to find it, but we had the information to go to the right place. And we got lucky with the weather because it could easily have blown out and we never would have found it. Um, And there is extensive video online that you're free to look at it. And both of the papers describing the ruby sea dragon and the discovery of it alive are online. And you can download those papers and read them for free if you're interested. So, in conclusion, I want to thank our Sea Dragon team, uh, Josephine uh, Nerida, the whole team at Sea who helped us. It was really a fantastic day. We bought a terrible red wine, uh, sparkling, <laughs> but we also bought a decent sparkling champagne and we had a good, good time uh, after all of the cruise and, of course, thanks to Dewey White and her family foundation. Uh, and also... Because serendipity doesn't happen in a vacuum, as Louis Pasteur certainly noted. And all of my colleagues for our deep sea work over the years on xenotabella and swimmer and uh, Ozadax have all been essential to all of the work that I've talked to you about tonight. And I'm happy to take questions from you as we watch a little bit more video of the Ruby Sea Dragon.
1: Jones, uh, are the problems with climate change making it harder to find new species?
0: Uh, No. Right now, our trouble is to get good baselines to understand the changes that are going to happen in the distributions of species and in biodiversity as change continues to happen. So we've been trying to do that. We'll go and explore a region, and we've done this in Antarctica where the oceans are warming the fastest anywhere in the world to get a baseline of biodiversity distributions that people will then be able to see probably the unfortunate changes that will happen as time goes on. And as a result of that, we end up finding new species because we really probably have only named a fraction of a percent of the biodiversity that is in the oceans. And when I say that 18,000 species are named every year, it sounds like a lot. But at the rate of the estimates of the undiscovered biodiversity that are out there, we still have centuries of work to do to find what's out there. But do we have centuries of time in order to find that biodiversity?
1: What is the quality of super coolness that um, qualifies a species for Species of the year?
0: (laughs) Yes. uh, Thanks, Bob. That's an interesting question. i think we 've managed to crack it with worms by having catchy names, so honestly, I was hoping Jabber would get in there this year, maybe he will, um, but having something called swimmer or the churo i mean it was they were extraordinary biodiversity discoveries, and that probably helped. Um, but if you look at the list and I recommend you go and look it up you 'll see that there 's um, a range of different things. Usually there's some extraordinary fossils that are there. There's usually some strange insects, since most of the animal biodiversity is insects. Uh, And they always pick out, they try and cover the bases in terms of marine biodiversity, just to give a flavor of what's out there. So it's an eclectic mix uh, by an ever-changing committee of people. And we've just gotten lucky over the years with our three.
1: Are there predators that prey on ruby sea dragons?
0: Oh well, uh, the the video you're seeing now is all we know about ruby sea dragons. We did have one washed up where it's uh, it had been definitely partly eaten, but we don't know whether that was post-mortem or it was actually a predation event that killed it. Um, I'm hoping people will now go back and document more about the ecology of the ruby sea dragon while we work to try and make sure that it's protected by the Western Australian government. Um, I don't doubt that maybe one day it will end up on display in aquariums but i certainly hope we find a lot more out about its biology before that happens
1: i'm curious about the the bone eating worms uh, worms aren't terribly mobile how when they eat the bone how do they find the new bo- the next bone or how how what's their method of mobility
0: yes so that's a a story I couldn't really explain is that once they're on the bone, that's where they live for their whole lives. But the females uh, spawn out little babies, and a female can make 350 eggs a day. And so they get cast off into the water, they swim around in the plankton, most of them, they're not going to find bone. Uh, They'll die before they run out of the yolk, but a few do. And we've been amazed at how quickly these Ozidax worms will find and colonize bone. We've done time-lapse photography, and they'll be on the bone and covering the bone in a matter of six weeks, and they grow very quickly. And when, when we do the genetic diversity of what we find on those bones, they represent a massive population. So we think, basically, there are thousands and thousands of these, millions of these little baby worms floating in the plankton at any one time, just waiting for a whale carcass to fall down, and fish bones, seals, who knows, maybe even people. Um, Shana Gafridi and I, in one of our quiet moments, thought that it would be nice for us to be buried at sea and to let Ozodaks have its way with us, given given all the time we've devoted to uh, studying it.
1: We have one more over Mm -hmm. here. When you were speaking about the bony worms, you mentioned that they had a well-developed circulatory system, and I wonder if blood actually circulates and what helps it to circulate.
0: Uh, so worms don't have a heart the way that we do, but they do have some muscular uh, blood vessels. So the, the Ozodax have a big trunk uh, that goes up to that feathery plume, and in that are two big blood vessels, and they are surrounded by muscle, and they can pump blood out from the dorsal blood vessel into that big plume, and that's where it gets oxygenated. And then the oxygen comes, oxygenated hemoglobin comes back down the ventral vessel and then spreads out through the roots because the bacteria uh, are, are um, aerobic bacteria. So they definitely need it to be provided with oxygen by the worm, and the worm itself needs oxygen. So. But the, the amount of blood they have is truly astonishing. And they're living in a very anoxic environment, though, in the bone, so they've got to keep all of that tissue alive. And we think they're metabolically very efficient, and they're, because they're growing so fast that there's a high energy demand, uh, hence that massive circulatory system. They don't have blood cells, though. It's free hemoglobin floating in that liquid. Um, right here? Is the hemoglobin related to uh, mammalian hemoglobin in any way, shape, or form? It, it is. Uh, it's, there is There appears to be a single evolutionary origin of hemoglobin, but it's... Uh, very different in some ways in its function. Uh, for instance, the riftia, the hydrothermal vent tube worms that I showed you, their hemoglobin can bind oxygen as well as um, hydrogen sulfide, which in us the hydrogen sulfide would bind to our hemoglobin and we would suffocate if we were exposed to it to, to a great degree. But in those riftier worms, they're using the hydrogen sulfide as food that they supply to the bacteria. So their hemoglobin is better than ours in a way in that they can release both the oxygen and the hydrogen sulfide. And we think ozodax also can tolerate fairly high uh, sulfide levels as well. And that may be also to do their circular, due to their circulation system. So uh, you said that you have collections of uh, species from deep sea, right? And but those, but in deep seas, it's under great pressure. So over here, do you have to pressurize the chamber? Some people do have special chambers to pressurize the animals and bring them up. Uh, we don't. Uh, we find that if they're from a thousand meters or less, we can keep them alive just by keeping them cool. And we've kept them alive for some months in my lab. We try and lower the oxygen level, because they're often used to a bit lower oxygen. But usually, if they're from deeper than 1,000 meters, they always die. But there's great challenges with using these pressure vehicles or vessels to put the animals in. And people have done physiology on them. Uh, but our goal has normally been to get them up, keep them alive if we can. If they don't, usually they'll be still alive to a degree where we can process them for the genetics. Um, but we end up not being able to do physiology on the animals. So there there are definitely physiological changes that happen under great pressure, that when it's released, they'll die quite quickly.
1: We have one here and one back there. Thank you. How many new species do you think you can find by the end of this year?
0: Whoa. (laughs) (laughs) Well... Um, where We find them faster than we can name them, much faster. So it's always a delay in naming our species, as some people here in the audience will know. And uh, we are about to go on three expeditions. My lab and I will be going out to hydrothermal vents, to methane seeps, um, and to whale falls. And I'm expecting we'll find a lot of new species. but. Once we've got the animals, we then have a lot of work in the lab to do the genetics to then figure out if things are new. And then there's the whole process of writing the scientific paper. So our bottleneck is usually the writing of the papers. And there we, we're happy if we can do 25 in a year. I'm, I'm going to be happy with 25 this year. 14 bone worms, a bunch of other kinds. Mostly it's going to be a worm year. Um, LAUGHTER the fish was an unusual year, but we do other things like s- snails and, and uh, echinoderms, but this year is a bumper worm year. How, how does the ruby sea dragon propel itself? I, did you see that? It, it doesn't seem visible that there are fins or whatever way. It just seems to be drifting in the ocean. Yes, it is. And very streamlined compared to the other ones. It, it has lost the appendages. Uh, but it does have the stumps. You can see them coming out of the back and on the belly where the appendages were. Um, They're extensions of its rib cage and also of its vertebrae. Uh, But like the leafy and the weedy sea dragon, if you've never looked at one in the tanks here, you'll see that they have a pair of pectoral fins up here that they flap like this, and you can see this one now has quite muscular, uh, a, a swollen area just below the head, and that's got fins on it. It's swimming up into the water now to feed. You just saw a feeding strike. And then along the back, behind, that, um, behind the trunk, there's a long single fin, the dorsal fin, and that's used to swim as well. And if you uh, go and look one day in the aquarium just in behind me here, it's exactly the same fins that the two sea dragons here use as well.
1: Okay, we have time for two more questions. Thank you. Uh, has any aquarium or other facility in Australia been able to acquire one of the ruby sea dragons, or are they still not available to the public in that sense?
0: Not to my knowledge. Uh, We we haven't heard anything. Uh, They have a swim bladder, so bringing them up from 50 to 60 meters depth would be a challenge. They would have to probably bring them up very slowly over a period of days. Um, It's also a pretty sharky area. Um, as in white sharks, and I wouldn't want to be diving there with extensive bottom times and decompression times. Nevertheless, I'm sure some people will do it. But maybe they'll do it in a cage, and they could bring the dragons up over time, but they'll need permits, Uh, and it's whether the Western Australian government would permit them to do it. But thus far, we haven't heard anything.
1: Well, great. I want to thank you. You are a masterful storyteller.